In the classic Twilight Zone episode, Button, Button, Arthur and Norma Lewis are offered a box with a single button. And they're told if they press that button, two things will happen. They will receive $200,000 tax-free, and someone they don't know will die. After a lot of deliberation and a whole lot of bad acting, Norma presses the button, but nothing really happens. The couple goes to bed, only to be greeted the next morning by the keeper of the box, who gives them the cash and then assures them that the button will be reprogrammed and offered to someone whom they don't know. Ooh, and it goes to the credits. But what's interesting is that in the hours following the button press, it seemed like very little happened. But by the end of the story, we discover that all sorts of consequences immediately started unfolding, which would have lethal and tragic results near and far. Now, the last time we were in Genesis a few weeks ago, Adam and Eve had made the choice to eat the fruit of the tree of the knowledge of good and evil, despite the warnings of death that were attached to it. They had been promised that if they did so, they would surely die. But then what happened? They didn't die. What gives? Well, they didn't die physically, at least, not yet. They began to die physically. They died immediately spiritually. They would have gone on to die eternally. And so there was a lot of death involved, but the Lord said, in the day you eat of it, you will surely die. And they ate of it. It didn't seem like really anything had happened. But just because their death didn't happen immediately didn't mean that death wasn't on its way. James explains this to us on a spiritual level in his letter. James 1.15 says, After desire has conceived, it gives birth to sin, and when sin is fully grown, it gives birth to death. Is sin really that big of a deal? We know theologically the answer is yes. But if we're honest, we are a lot more casual about pushing the sin button when it's offered to us all the time. And why not? God is a God of grace after all, right? And not every sin leads immediately to death, does it? But the fact of the matter is, the Bible explains that nonchalance towards sin and the warnings God has given to us about it is the very same mistake that Adam and Eve made so many millennia ago in the garden. And not only does sin bring terrible consequences into our lives and the world at large, but it also drives us away from God. And that's exactly the opposite of what we want in life. If we come to terms with just how gruesome and just how deadly sin is, the next question is, okay, well, then what can be done? Because if we're honest, we will say like Paul did in his letter, man, the things I want to do, I don't do. The things I don't want to do, those are the things I find myself doing. Oh, wretched man that I am, who will save me from this body of death? If this plague is so deadly and so pervasive, not just in the world, but in my heart itself, if it's passed to us from our parents and to our kids, infecting our hearts and minds and our souls, what hope do we have to escape its terrible effects? Well, God gives us an answer here in Genesis chapter 4, and it's one we must still take to heart these thousands of years later. As we begin, one reminder might be helpful for us. This has come up before in our studies uh, through this book, and it's going to come up again. The book of Genesis is a historical account of things that really happened, okay? We have no reason to believe that the book of Genesis is uh, figurative or an analogy or anything like that. Uh, and it's very simple to, to, to look at this book and approach it this way. 
Uh, Genesis 1 through 11 are a historical record, just like Genesis 12 through you know, 50 are a historical record. If Joseph is a real person, then Jacob is a real person, then Adam and Eve are real people as well. But while it is a historical account of things that really happened, it doesn't mean that we are given all the information and all of the background on every situation we're reading about. Uh, there's not enough space, there's not enough time, right? Obviously, Moses, who is the author of the first five books of the Bible under the inspiration of the Holy Spirit, is not able to explain everything about every situation that's being presented to us. We have a lot of questions about this period of time before the flood in particular, and we're simply not given all the detail we would like. Now, some of our questions are going to go unanswered, or we'll just have to make some educated guesses about things. And that's okay. It's great to meditate on God's word and think about what might have been and try to piece things together and think biblically about all of that. But here's the key. The key is to remember two things. Just because I have an idea about something that the Bible is, is perhaps silent on in this section, even if I have an idea that makes sense to me, that doesn't make it so. That doesn't mean that's how it was. And the second thing to keep in mind is that we are given what we need to know. Listen, God knows what we need to know from the scripture. And he could have made his revelation as long or as short as he wanted. He decided on 66 books of his inspired word. And it is, uh, it is all just right. Okay, it is infallible and it is inerrant and we, we love it, it's what we need. And so while we speculate or imagine answers to questions that arise, don't forget to focus in on what has been delivered because what you've been given in the word has been given to you by a perfect all-knowing God so that you might be complete and equipped for every good work. So verse one. The man was intimate with his wife Eve, and she conceived and gave birth to Cain. And she said, I have had a male child with the Lord's help. Adam and Eve, you'll recall, had been driven from the garden after their sin so that they wouldn't eat from the tree of life in their sinful state and live forever in that condition. But even though they were driven out of the garden and they had, had a breaking and a separation in their communion with God or their relationship with God, we, still, they, we see they still had as much relationship with the Lord as they could considering their fallen state. God did not hide away from them. We're gonna see God still interacting with human beings. God still interacts with human beings today. Obviously, the rules of engagement are different. We don't talk to God face to face. We don't approach God with blood sacrifices, those sorts of things. But God still wants to interact with you personally day to day. Now, notice Eve's perspective here. She assumed God's prophecy about her seed to be literal and imminent. It seems that she had some expectation that perhaps Cain would be the deliverer God spoke about back in Genesis 3.15. She felt, at any rate, that God was actually involved in human affairs, including the family life. She said, okay, I, in cooperation with God, we have this baby boy, and I think God has not only done something in my life to help bring this um, baby into the world, but also that God is gonna be working in the lives of our family. And that's absolutely true. Uh, she wasn't mistaken about God's interaction in human affairs. She was mistaken about who Cain would turn out to be. But it is important that we take a look at how she, 
the first woman, right, and Adam, how they thought about God's prophetic word. Because they had face-to-face conversation with God, right? They had personal interaction with God. Uh, The couple of conversations we see them having with God are not the only conversations that they had with God. And so how did they look at what we would call Bible prophecy or God's word prophetically speaking? We wanna approach Bible prophecy the same way. God had made specific promises, even though he hadn't given them all the details about it. And so they thought, well, we're not exactly sure how this is gonna work out, but we know it's gonna work out literally. And so maybe this baby is part of that prophecy. We have no reason to think that God uh, keeps some prophecies literally and a lot of other prophecies not literally. It makes no sense to do that. Now, there is a lot of divide concerning Bible prophecy when it comes to what, the, what we call the end times or the, the fancy theological word for it that you'll hear sometimes is eschatology, the study of the end of, of, of things, the theological study of the end of the world, right? Eschatology. And what happens is sometimes Christians or different um, Christian traditions, they, they, they're standing like on a timeline, right? We, we live in time. We live in 2021 right now. And it's interesting. What happens a lot of times is that people will turn around and look back and they'll say, well, God fulfilled all those promises literally. All the promises about Jesus's first coming, all of the promises to you know, David and to all of these other people, he fulfilled those literally. And then they turn around and look forward from their time forward and they say, but all those promises are gonna be figurative. That, none of that's really gonna happen. The book of the Revelation, we don't even know what that's all about. That's all just, you know, crazy stories and, and we shouldn't assume any of that's really gonna happen. That's a completely inconsistent way to look at Bible prophecy. And it's never the way that Bible prophecy is thought about in the Bible. Eve had received the first prophecy from God himself and she had much less interrupted access to God than we have. And then she had this baby boy and she said, I'm wondering if this is a literal fulfillment of God's prophecy. Of course, we know that it wasn't. We know that the literal fulfillment of God's prophecy came many thousands of years later, but it still literally came in the person of Jesus Christ, God who put on flesh and came born of the virgin. He is the seed of, of, of Eve. He is the second Adam. But just because there was that long gap of time didn't mean that there was any less literal seed. Does that make sense? And so we're on board with that, but it's a good thing for us to remind ourselves of, especially when we're out there in the Christian culture and you know, um, I don't keep statistics or anything like that, but you know, our view of biblical prophecy, I would probably say is not the dominant view. Dominant view, you know, is that, well, there's just there's a bunch of stuff towards the back of the Bible and who even knows? It's just a bunch of stuff. Just, you know, just, just be a Christian. And, and okay, yeah, but, but prophecy is, is a, a quarter to a third of the Bible. If you took all the verses of the Bible and you categorize them all, 27% of them would be prophetic in nature at the time that they were delivered. And so we can't just say, well, Bible prophecy doesn't matter. It does matter. It matters a whole, whole lot. And we see that to Eve, it mattered a lot as well. Now, let me say this. We're not specifically told that Cain was Eve's first son. Okay, we're just not. It seems like he was. I think we're meant to understand that he was, but there is some ambiguity. 
And this is gonna become really important in the next passage. And so I don't want us to get too far ahead of ourselves, but people start really scratching their heads and really getting confused about the state of the world in this time just after the fall of man. Where did all the people from come from? Where did Cain get his wife? Cain's gonna res- reference all these other people. They're gonna come and get me. Where do they come from? And so we just wanna be really careful. We're told certain things, we're not told certain things. I think Cain was probably their first kid. He maybe was their first son. But it doesn't actually say that it was their first son or their first child. Now, I've heard people say that Adam and Eve had a bunch of kids before the fall and they were not corrupted by sin. One time uh, in, when we were in Columbia teaching a class, I forget which class we were teaching, and one of the students, he had been brought up in a church tradition that taught this, that there were secret, immortal, unfallen humans from before they ate the fruit and they're like, just like hiding somewhere right now. Okay, that's a a completely unbiblical idea. And you can go through the rest of the Bible and see how the Bible describes the state of every person and that everybody came from Eve. It was after the fall, okay? So that's an unbiblical idea. But listen, the end of the day, we don't know how many total kids Adam and Eve had. We know for sure that they had more than three sons, right? Because in Genesis 5, we're gonna be told that Not only had they had Cain and Abel, but they're gonna have another son named Seth who the Bible's gonna focus in on. And it's gonna say that Adam and Eve had other sons and daughters. Now, it's kind of a mind blower, but Adam and Eve were created in full adulthood, right? Eve could have had a child at age one, right? I mean, so they were mentally mature, physically mature. You know, we don't need to feel weird about that. That is just the way it is, right? And they had been commanded to be fruitful and multiply. We have no reason to think that they didn't do that. In fact, we have every reason to think that they were very meticulous and careful about the way that they followed God after the fall. And so uh, we know that they didn't have Seth until Adam was 130 years old. That's what the text is gonna tell us. They had other sons and daughters than the three boys that are named in the book of Genesis. And we have no reason to believe that they didn't have essentially a kid every year. There's just no reason to think that. Now, there's lots of Jewish traditions. Josephus says that the Jewish tradition was that they had like 33 kids. Other people are super conservative and say, well, they had three boys and three girls. They're just pulling that number out of nowhere, right? And so we don't know. We know that they lived for hundreds and hundreds and hundreds of years, like an 800 year lifespan. And we know that genetics and, and the fall of man was not impacting the, the life cycles of human beings the way that it does now, or certainly the way that it did after the flood. And so we don't know how many kids Adam and Eve had, but I'm guessing it's more on the upper end of a whole, whole lot than, than just three or five. Now, we see that despite the pain and the difficulty, which was now associated with childbirth because of their sin, Eve was not resentful against God because of it. She, in fact, was thankful for how he was involving himself in, her, in their daily life. And so we just see hearts that are inclined toward God and uh, when it comes to Adam and Eve and Abel as well. Verse two, she also gave birth to his brother Abel. Now Abel became a shepherd of flocks, but Cain worked the ground. 
So the boys grew up. They're men. They're grown up, okay? And they took up different vocations. Some suggest that Abel did the better thing of being a shepherd than Cain being a farmer, since shepherding is such an important concept and theme in the Bible. But the fact of the matter is that both of these jobs were part of the commission God had given to mankind. What did he ask Adam to do? to have dominion over the animals and to be gardeners, tending the earth. And so of these two sons, one is doing each of those jobs. And so I think they're both sort of fulfilling that commission or seeing, okay, well, God says we need to do this and God says we need to do that. Tending the flocks is a full-time job. Tending the field is a full-time job. And we see each one of them doing the other. And I think on a devotional level, there's an encouragement for us here if we bring this up into our day and age. There's a lot, lot, lot of different kinds of work that God wants to accomplish through his people. Every Christian should not be doing the same thing when it comes to ministry or in your life's work. Every church shouldn't be doing the same thing. God is a God of variety and complexity. This is one of the failures of the idea of being a monk somewhere in a monastery that we all just escape up to a mountain and we all just close in and we all do the exact same thing and, and we end up just sort of imploding on ourselves. That's not what God wants. It's never what God wants. He wants us to go through the world as his royal priests and fulfill his commission. And if you look at the book of Acts or if you look at the way that Jesus worked with the disciples and if you just look through the testimony of history of people God used, there are so much different kinds of work that God is doing to accomplish his grand purposes for the world throughout human history. Uh, it's real, really important. And so we have a tendency to think that, well, you know, every church needs to do this same pro. Every church in Hanford needs to do this thing. Every church in Kings County, if we were all just unified, then revival would break out. There's that sort of cultural idea that we hear from time to time. But that's just not the case. It simply isn't. That doesn't mean we're, you know, divided from anybody. It's just that God is complex and he's a God of variety and he has a lot of corners of his vineyard that he has sent us out in to work. And so uh, he calls out missionaries and medical workers. He calls out commentators and correctional officers. Peter in his epistle said that each believer has received a gift to serve others as good stewards of the varied grace of God. And so... The question is, what, what life has God given you? What has he called you into? Unless you're in abject sin, unless you're in rebellion against God actively like Jonah who said, I know what God wants me to do. I'm gonna go in the other direction. Unless that's happening, there's a good chance that you are in the place and in the community that God wants you to be in. Now, certainly you need to search, ask him and say, hey, Lord, is this where you have me? Do you want me here in this sales position? Do you want me here in this job over here? Do you want me, you know, that kind of thing. But by and large, God is bringing you into the life that he has for you. And he says, yeah, and I want you to impact the people in that place right there. We need Lydia's who are sellers of purple, but gather with people on the riverbank, right? We need the Philippian jailers who become Christians and then are going to no longer be, you know, unjust jailers or pagan people. We need people who follow God and serve God and impact their communities in all sorts of fields. Now, if you're involved in an illegal field or an immoral field, that's a different story. But we need all of these different varied works uh, as God works through people in all sorts of different ways 
because he's a complex God with lots of variety. And so as Christians in a local fellowship, we're not supposed to look around and just be a duplicate of some other person or some other church or whatever Christian book is popular right now. We're not supposed to be duplicates. We're supposed to be designated by God, the Holy Spirit, into specific works that he has invited us to discover and walk in. Verse three, in the course of time, Cain presented some of the land's produce as an offering to the Lord, and Abel also presented an offering, some of the firstborn of his flock and their fat portions. The Lord had regard for Abel in his offering, but he did not have regard for Cain in his offering. Cain was furious and he looked despondent. There's a lot of speculation here as to why God was unhappy with Cain's offering. Why specifically? Many say the problem was that Cain brought a bloodless sacrifice. The shortcoming of this view is that blood is not mentioned when it comes to Abel's sacrifice, and blood is going to be mentioned very directly in a moment here. But also the word used for offering is the same word that Moses is gonna use later in the, in the Levitical code for grain sacrifice. So you can't say, well, they had to bring a blood sacrifice, but you know, flip over a few pages and that exact same term, that exact same word is gonna be used for grain sacrifice. We also have to remember that while it's true without the shedding of blood, there is no remission of sins, two other things are also true as we read this passage. First, we're not told that this was an atonement offering. We're not told that they were coming to receive remission for sins. We're told that they're coming and presenting an offering to the Lord. There's all sorts of offerings that are brought to the Lord in the Old Testament. And there was no Mosaic law at this point. We don't know how much revelation they had or what specific thing God had asked of them. He had asked something of them, but we don't know what it is. And remember, God is on record as saying, hey, it's not the blood that I want from you guys. He says this to Israel in the book of Isaiah. He's like, hey, don't even bother bringing me the blood. It's not the blood of bulls and rams that I want. I want your heart. That's what he's on record as saying to Israel. And so it wasn't the bloodlessness that God was upset about, but the state of Cain's heart. We know that because the New Testament gives us some comment on this very scene. In Hebrews 11, we read this. By faith, Abel offered, a, offered to God a better sacrifice than Cain did. By faith, he was approved as a righteous man because God approved his gifts. And so the problem was the man, not the material. Now, it is possible, we don't know, but it's possible that Cain had, at the last minute, grabbed a few raw sheaves of grain to sort of throw at the Lord. I mean, yeah, here you go. I got to show up. Is that today? Okay, I got to go and give, give him that. Or it's possible that he had very meticulously prepared a very fine basket of fruit. We don't know. The problem was the heart. Hebrews tells us that Abel was full of faith. Jesus says that he was the first prophet. And so Abel is a very spiritual man who loved God, who was all about God's word, who was all about devotion to God. Meanwhile, we're told here that Cain did not have faith. And more than that, we're told in 1 John that his deeds were evil and he was of the evil one, speaking of Satan. And so we have two completely different types of people when it came to the heart, one devoted to God, one in opposition to God. He was devoted to the evil one. So why would Cain show up and bring this offering at all? Scholars point out that the terms used for presenting an offering are ones used for a subordinate bringing a tribute to a ruler. 
listen, I mean, God showed up in person. There he is over there with those big cherubim dudes with flaming swords. If he says, I need you to bring me an offering, you're probably going to do it, I'm guessing. If there, was, if there were beings of light out here and, one of, and two of them were like weird, freaky cherubims that are, like are mind-blowing, you know, people in the rest of the Bible, they see angels and they just like fall down because they're all freaked out. And there's this whirling, flaming sword and they say, you need to bring an offering. We'd probably put something together, right? We're like, will chairs work? Will juice work? What do we got to bring over to you? So we don't know exactly, you know, what was going on as far as his motivation, but... Um, Uh, based on the language used, it seems that this was a regular meeting that God had scheduled with these two men. And even though we find that from the beginning, Cain had nothing but disdain for God, he still presented himself probably each week on the Sabbath day or on the, not the Sabbath, but the seventh day. Why would he do that if he hated God and had no faith, which we know is true based on other verses of scripture? Well, God had announced the cosmic struggle between his seed and the seed of the serpent, who was the devil. He had told it to the serpent. And for all of human history, Satan has been trying to sabotage and stop the plan of God. He's been a killer from the beginning, we're told. And in Cain, he had a willing operative who was full of resentment and jealousy toward God and the people who loved God. And so I think that the devil perhaps had asked Cain to stay very close to his brothers and waiting for a chance to spring an attack because we see that the devil is also interested in who the deliverer is. So Eve has Cain and she says, maybe this is the deliverer. And the serpent is kind of waiting around thinking, yeah, who's the deliverer? He tries to kill Moses. He tries to kill David. He tries to kill Jesus a couple of times, right? Satan's all about killing the deliverer. He finally succeeds and realizes it was the biggest mistake of his life, right? That he got the, the people to crucify Christ, which was, which was the crushing of Satan. And so Anyway, I think he had a willing operative here and he said, yeah, 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 hang out with your brother and see what's going on, see what God says. Now, in some way, they brought these offerings, it seems, together, and it seems that they were made aware that God did not approve of Cain's heart or his offering. The verse says he doesn't approve of the man and he also doesn't approve of what is brought to him. We don't know if it was fire coming down on the altars that they had made or maybe the Lord speaking directly to them in a pre-incarnate visit of Jesus Christ. But in this moment, something in Cain snapped. He was lit up with anger and it showed right there on his face. And again, we don't know in what specific way his offering was inferior, but it's clear that it was the result of his purposeful refusal to do what God had asked of them. It wasn't a mistake. It wasn't just, I tried my best. He didn't try his best. It was a purposeful rebellion on Cain's part in some way because he did not believe God. He did not love God. He did not honor God. And so we see that Abel brought an animal from the flock, not just any animal, but the finest specimen from the firstborn of his stock. Cain had brought some produce. It was a willful and defiant act of rebellion. It was a bare minimum attempt to pay off the sovereign so that he could go on his way. In that moment of hard-hearted rebellion, as Cain was seething with jealous anger, what happened? The Lord held him back And he called him over to the side and he says, hey, come here, I wanna talk to you for a minute. And he speaks tenderly to him. Look at verse six. Then the Lord said to Cain, why are you furious? And why do you look despondent? If you do what's right, won't you be accepted? But if you do not do what is right, sin is crouching at the door. It's desirous for you, but you must rule over it. 
And so here, in a very gracious manner, God invites Cain to think about his life and his choices. Hey, man, what are you doing? This is not working. It's not working for me. It's not working for you. Why don't you think about what you're doing? And he warns Cain about the path that he's on and what it's going to lead to. Cain's anger is directed at God. It's going to be directed at his brother. But his failure here was not either of their fault. It was Cain's fault. What God had asked was not too hard for them to accomplish. And as Albert Barnes points out, is is that God had not given up on Cain yet. He's reaching out to him, trying to bring him into the fold. Despite knowing how much hate was in his mind, how hard his heart was, God was still trying to guide and instruct him, still trying to woo him, still trying to win him over. This is the kind of grace of God that we need to always remind ourselves about. The Lord said, do what is right so you can escape the trap of sin because sin wants to destroy your life. It wants to dominate your life and you need to rule over it. This is the same command God has given us as his people today. In fact, the basic relationship that God had with Abel is the one we're meant to enjoy today. The circumstances, of course, are different, but the nature is the same. Think about it. God reveals his word, which becomes the foundation of our faith because faith comes by hearing and hearing by the word of God. We then freely choose to believe what God has said. And then, as Paul discusses in Romans, we do not let sin reign in our mortal bodies, but instead we present and offer ourselves to God as a living sacrifice and allow his grace to fill us that we might be made righteous. We believe God that if we live according to the flesh, we will die, and instead we choose to be led by God's spirit and filled with his spirit and be empowered to overcome our sinful nature as God leads us in righteousness. And as we go, we continue to have hope in God and that hope purifies us and we are able to put God's righteousness into practice more and more and more. And so that's the, the long version of the relationship God has called us into and the one being lived out by Abel. Abel was able to do it without the indwelling Holy Spirit. How much more empowered are we to do what God has asked? God had told Cain, listen, if you believe me and do what I've clearly said to you, I will lift you up. That's what the term accepted means. God does all he can to grant us victory over sin and escape from temptation and lift us up as he accomplishes his redeeming work in us day by day. But we have to be willing participants in that job. The alternative is not freedom, is not that, well, I just go do whatever I want and I'll deal with God at some point. The alternative is that we are going to be savaged and dominated by sin whose only goal is to destroy us. God has given us all we need to be victorious over sin, but he will not force us to believe him. He will not force us to do what is right. Instead, he presents us the option, gives us compelling evidence that we should believe him, proves that he is good and sin is bad, and then leaves the choice to us. Sadly, Cain has no response to God. As far as the narrative is concerned, he turns and walks away without saying a word. Instead, we read this in verse eight. Cain said to his brother Abel, let's go out to the field. And while they were in the field, Cain attacked his brother Abel and killed him. This was a vicious, bloody, premeditated murder. One commentator pointed out here that we not only have the first murder, we also have the first martyr. It's kind of a commentary on the struggle between sin and the savior, right? The very first murder is because he's making a martyr of Abel. Now, clearly Cain knew what he was doing was morally wrong. Like every person in the world, we have God's moral law written on our hearts. 
This is why murder is wrong you know, in certain circumstances in every culture in all of history. Sure, we say, well, what about the Spartans or what about these tribal? Yeah, but within their own tribe, they don't murder each other, right? So we have moral, God's moral law written on our heart. And Cain, for all of his hate and for all of you know, the stuff that's going on in his life, he knew that this was morally wrong. He did it out where no one else could see. He hid away the body undoubtedly. And in a moment, he's going to fully expect that he will be executed for this atrocity. He had slaughtered Abel on the altar of sin. In fact, one Bible dictionary points out that the term used for killing here is often the one the Old Testament uses for the sacrificing of animals. And so we see this dramatic contrast. Both the brothers were killers, right? What did Abel kill? Abel had killed his pride and killed one of his own lambs in submission to the God of mercy so that he might receive God's righteousness, so that he might honor God and obey God. Cain instead killed his own brother because of the jealous hatred he had. The Lord had said to Adam and Eve that their sin would bring forth death. They pushed that button. It seemed like nothing happened. But now we see that Cain, it's like he becomes sin. He is the, the grim reaper in the scene. He becomes death. He's the bringer of death because sin does not only affect us, but those around us as well. Verse nine, then the Lord said to Cain, where's your brother, Abel? I don't know, he replied. Am I my brother's guardian? The callousness of Cain's response is shocking. When God came to Adam and Eve and said, where are you? What happened? They were freaked out. I'm afraid, I'm, I'm hiding. And, but they, they were, they, there was this brokenness and they were timid before God. God comes and speaks to Cain and, and man, no fear, no remorse. In fact, he mocks God with his answer, maybe even taunting God with the suggestion that even he, God Almighty, wasn't able to protect his servant, little Abel. Oh, I'm not his guardian, are you? He knows that God knows what's going on. This is, this is incredible. The question is, why didn't God stop Cain? He could have. Clearly, he was able to drive Adam and Eve from the garden. He had regular meetings with human beings. He had weird warrior angels at his disposal. So why allow this terrible thing to happen? It's because though he is a God who is intricately involved in the course of history, he is also a God who has given human beings a genuine free will. If you don't believe that God has given man a genuine free will, then this scene alone condemns God as an absolute monster that he allowed his precious son, Abel, his prophet, to be butchered by Cain. And you have to say, if man doesn't have a free will, God did that. God did that for his own perverse pleasure, I guess. No, it's that God actually does give you and I a free will to choose. God repeats his pattern here of compassionately confronting the sinner caught in their sin. He did so with Adam and Eve. He would do so again famously with Saul of Tarsus. There are other examples, of course, in the scripture. And so again, we just see how immense is God's compassion. He has love and mercy for murderers, hard-hearted murderers who mock him. And God says, I, I still love Cain. I still wanna give Cain an, an opportunity to repent. Even a man like this who disdained God so much and had so much hatred toward him, he was not beyond the, the efforts of God's grace. This is how gracious God is, how loving he is, that he would reach out even to this guy in his rebellion and murder and hatred and say, do you wanna repent? Do you want mercy? Because I'll give it to you. Verse 10, then he said, what have you done? 
Your brother's blood cries out to me from the ground. So now you are cursed, alienated from the ground that opened its mouth to receive your brother's blood you have shed. If you work the ground, it will never again give you its yield. You will be a restless wanderer on the earth. This scene establishes a few truths. First, that the killing of a person is a particularly heinous crime, one that demands justice. Second, that there is no such thing as hidden sin when it comes to the eyes of God. Listen, you may be involved in something that no one else in the entire world knows about, but God knows about it. He sees it and he knows all. And be sure that your sin will find you out one way or another. Third, God sometimes does bring temporal judgment as a consequence to sin, especially the sin of shedding innocent blood. This is something God cares a whole lot about as you track through the Bible. Of course, Cain would be judged eternally after he died, but he'd face this curse on this side of the grave as well. There's a real world consequence for what he had done, doled out by the Almighty. Verse 13, but Cain answered the Lord, my punishment's too great to bear since you're banishing me today from the face of the earth and I must hide from your presence and become a restless wanderer on the earth. Whoever finds me will kill me. So he's not upset about how he butchered his brother. He's upset that he's gonna have a tougher life from here on out. It is amazing to see just how poisonous sin is, what it does to a heart, what it does to a mind. This is what it does to a human being. Maybe not leading to the same result in every case. Hey, we're all sinners, and I think probably very few of us are murderers in the room, but this is what sin does if we let it rule in our hearts. It poisons us to this level, and this is what God is trying to save us from and from the results of our sin. In Isaiah 57, we're told that there is no peace for the wicked, and God is trying to save us from that. Ironically, the murderer wants someone to protect him from being murdered. And he's like, what am I gonna do? Someone might kill me when I go out there. Verse 15, and then the Lord replied to him, in that case, whoever kills Cain will suffer vengeance seven times over. And he placed a mark on Cain that so whoever found him would not kill him. And then Cain went out from the Lord's presence and lived in the land of Nod, east of Eden. God's grace is really confounding. It almost feels like Cain gets away with murder, right? I think so. You read this and you're like, wait, what? What? He gets to go free? He just doesn't get to farm anymore? Of course, that's not all that's going on. Stepping back, we know that that's not true. He was judged temporally and eternally. Meanwhile, God still offered him grace. He still offered him mercy. He gave Cain assistance even. He put this sign on him so that he wouldn't be executed for his crime. What was the mark of Cain? We don't know. No one knows. Of course, some despicable men in history suggested it was black skin and used that completely unbiblical delusion to try to defend slavery. But there's absolutely nothing about that that tracks with what we're told in the Bible. Nothing at all. You may be interested to learn that a variety of Bible commentators don't think there was an actual mark on Cain at all, but that it was some sort of external sign that he had rather than what we might think of as a tattoo. So we have no idea what this was, but whatever it was, it must have somehow conveyed information. Otherwise, what help would it have been? If it was just like a, a weird blotch on his face, that doesn't tell me anything, right? And so we don't know exactly what this is, Anyone who tells you they know what it is, they're, they're not telling you the truth. Once more, the sinner goes east. Adam and Eve had gone to the east. Cain moved to the east. When men migrate toward Babylon, toward the Tower of Babel in a later passage of Genesis, they go to the east. 
We see men being moved further away from the presence of God and the place he had established to commune with them. And now, what do we see? God is drawing all men back to himself because Jesus Christ was lifted up. He says, I'm gonna draw all men to myself so that they have the opportunity to be saved. And so we wanna be people like Abel who by faith believe and present ourselves to the Lord in loving devotion. Now, along the way, there's sin to contend with. We may not be murderers, at least by hand, but remember, if you're angry in your heart, you've committed murder there, Jesus said. Everyone who looks at a woman lustfully has already committed adultery with her in his heart. And so sin is a very serious danger. It's just as serious for you and for me as it was for Cain and Abel. It wants to destroy you. It wants to bring you down. It wants to ruin your relationships and mess up your communities. It crouches at the flap of your tent trying to claim your life. But if you're a Christian, you need not fear because God has given you victory over temptation and over sin and over the devil. You simply need to resist them, the Bible says. But neither should we take sin lightly. Instead, we remember this story and remind ourselves that we have a responsibility to put God's righteousness into action in our own lives, bringing ourselves as living sacrifices, putting to death what belongs to our earthly nature and instead putting on the new self as we are renewed in the knowledge according to the image of our creator, the book of Colossians says. Living a life devoted uh, in worship to God and thankfulness to God and in the spiritual richness he has offered because of what he has done on our behalf. 